but let's get going. Um, we're going to get in the Word, and so if you have your Bible, find uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Today we're going to finish our look at, at chapter 8 that we began last week, although that means for today that we're going to look at the bulk of the chapter, because last week we only focused on the second of the, of the seven I am statements that we find in the John's Gospel that we find in chapter 8, verse 12, and then again in chapter 9, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Remember, back in chapter 6, he had said, I am the bread of life. But last week, when we talked about I am the light of the world, we talked about the, the background and the significance of that statement, uh, of that statement in light of the Old Testament, and the fact that Jesus said it in the temple during the Jewish Feast of Booths. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those I am statements, being that there's seven of them, they're strung out all through the gospel. They're important uh, just to understanding John's gospel as a whole, and so we always want to give special attention to them. But today, we're going to give attention to the bulk of the rest of the chapter. Now, I want to say a couple, one more introductory thing. I say the bulk of the rest of the chapter because I made reference last week, and I'll do it again today, to these early, uh, the earliest verses of the chapter uh, that begins actually in chapter 7, verse 53 which they lump into chapter 8, through chapter 8, verse 11. I made reference to those early verses last Sunday. That includes the story of uh, the Pharisees bringing the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And I pointed out that there, you know, there's, there's a, a footnote, or actually in my Bible and probably in yours, it's not a footnote, it's actually in the body of the text there, that says something to the effect that these verses do not appear um, in the earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. And, uh, and we mentioned that in the later uh, manuscripts that it does appear in, it, it, it's sort of all over the place. Uh, it, it appears here in some times. It, it appears in two other different places in John's gospel. One manuscript, at least, it appears in Luke's gospel, not even in John at all. So um, I say that to say that I don't, I'm not convinced yet that this passage is original to John's Gospel, 753 to 811. And so for that reason, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we're studying through the, the Gospel of John. Um, but having said that, I do think there's a chance that this, the event that it records uh, is an event that could have actually happened in the life and ministry of Jesus because it fits, if you, I mean, if you read it, it fits with other accounts that we do have in Scripture of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, perhaps, if that's the case, why did it not appear in the earliest? Why does it appear in the later? I don't know. Perhaps it was an oral, perhaps something really happened. It was orally passed down, um, and, and it eventually got written down. Um, and this is an example of one of those. I mean, John does say later in John's gospel that many other things happened. Jesus said and did many other things that are not written down in this book. These are written so that, you know, so we know, even from John's own words, that there were many other things that were said and done. And so perhaps this is an example of that, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Um, we just don't know. Either way, just to say a word about it, because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. Uh, it does fit with the, the, the character of Jesus that we see elsewhere in the Gospels, especially as it pertains to his mercy the immediate posture of mercy towards sinners who are uh, who come to him 
repentant, as seemingly this woman caught in adultery did. And it also fits with the, uh, the character of the Pharisees that we see elsewhere in the gospel. Jesus points out their self-righteousness, their inability to apply the law fairly and justly and righteously to her because they bring her saying, this woman's caught in adultery, what are you going to do? Well, the law actually says in Leviticus 20 verse 10 that if, 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 if a situation like this happens, you were to bring the man and the woman who were caught in adultery, and they only bring the woman. They don't, they don't bring the man. Um, so Jesus rebukes them for their unrepentant self-righteousness, forgives the repentant sinner. That's just the clear emphasis of the episode, and it's a good, a good word to, to hear. But we want to give our closest attention to the remainder of chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, which, as I said last week, unquestionably flows seamlessly from the events of chapter 7, carrying on the events of the same day that we see in chapter 7, the, the, which is the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day they called it. Chapter 8 records what was said in the temple later that day between Jesus and the crowds, especially the Pharisees. So that being said, let's read the passage together, and then we'll step back and think about two clear emphases that come from it. Begin reading in verse 12, read through the end of the chapter. So follow along with me as I, as I read. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just, as, just, uh, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, not, you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I, tell you, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, uh, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom, he said, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All right, let's pray. Well, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray that as we, as we think about it, uh, you would give us... Um, you would give us the help that we need to, uh, to see and, and, and understand and feel and do what you would have us to do. Give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear. Give us, please, we ask, minds to understand the truth that Jesus uh, tells us here. And give us hearts to embrace and love that truth and wills to obey what it uh, calls us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. And again, please give us ears to hear. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, obviously there is a lot of ground to cover in this chapter. And really there's no way that, that we can, in the time that we have to dive in and, and, and think minutely about every little thing that Jesus says here. He says a lot. 
But what we can do, I think, is pan out just a little bit from what we just read. Pan out a little bit and, and, and see as we pan out and think about the whole of it, are there any broader emphases that just naturally arise out of that text? Things that just keep coming up again and again. And then maybe we can consider those. And when we do that, I think there are two clear emphases uh, from John that do come to the forefront in what we just read. They may not surprise you when I tell you what they are, uh, but the task always, just as a student of the Bible, and especially if you're ever going to be a teacher of the Bible to someone else, the task is always to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying through John or whoever the biblical author is, and then apply that, whatever that may be, to our lives. And, and if, you keep, if, if that's your aim and you come to the text and you keep hearing the same thing again and again and again, or seeing the same thing again and again and again, that is not time to tune out or think you're hearing it wrong. Try to find something else, something new. The, the task for you in that moment is to hear it again and, 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 and uh, pay all the more careful attention to it. And so to that point, not surprisingly, the two clear emphases, if you're taking notes, that we need to see in this passage are, first, the deity of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. If, if you come away from that, that passage we just read, not thinking about the deity of Jesus, you're doing it wrong. I mean, it is, it is you almost cannot escape it. The deity of Jesus. And it's not just John emphasizing it about Jesus. It is Jesus emphasizing it about himself. This is one of the most clear chapters, the clearest chapters of Jesus out of his own mouth claiming deity for himself. That the deity of Jesus is the first clear emphasis, and the other is the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith in him. That dominates the passage beginning especially in verse 31 through the end of the chapter. We're far enough in John's gospel to see that, see, his, his, his focus is unwavering. I mean, since the beginning, his focus is unwavering to show the reader Jesus as he is and that salvation is only found in him and how do we receive that salvation in him and by consequence, how not to receive it. I mean, there's a reason these books are called gospels <laughs> because they so unrelentingly present the gospel of salvation through Christ to us and how to know him and how to experience that salvation in him. So let's dive in and, 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 and take a closer look and see how first this chapter presents to us the deity of Christ. So the very first uh, verse of our passage is what we spent the entirety of last week on, um, thinking about where Jesus stood in the midst of the of the temple, the crowd, on the evening of the great day of the Feast of Booths, which was one of the more, most popular feasts in Jerusalem at that day. So tons of people would have been in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths, especially on the great day when, when one of the great ceremonies took place where they had in the temple courtyard four huge candelabras, each with four different lamps on them, and they would have lit all four on there were 16 different lights huge lights would have just lit up the night sky there in the courtyard and it and reading between the lines it, and what Jesus said it seems like he waited till that that event on the great day of the feast un, under the the lit night sky from those lamps to stand up in the midst of the crowd and tell them I am the light of the world right and 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 he's announcing to them when he said that that he is 
he is uh, the, 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 the reality of everything that that feast remembered. It's re why did they light those candles? Because they're, it's a way of remembering how God, their forefathers in the wilderness after, after the exodus, out of bringing them out in slavery, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, but God led them in a cloud, pillar of cloud by night and a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of fire by night. And lighting those candles were to remember how God led them at night in the pillar of fire. Jesus said, I am the reality that that's remembering. That was me, <laughs> right? But he's also, when he says, I am the, the light of the world in that moment, he's also saying, I'm not just the reality of everything that's remembering. I am the hope. I am the fulfillment of every hope that it promised, right? But the scandal, that's what we talked about last week. But the scandal of that statement, I am the light of the world, didn't just lie in the fact of the visual significance of it under the lights in the temple or the, the Old Testament imagery that it conjured up, but ultimately, and, and first and foremost, the, the scandal of that statement lies in the first two words of it. I am the light of the world. We've said many, many times in John's Gospel why this was a significant phrase, because it's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush when Moses was about to go to Pharaoh, and God told him to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses says, who, who am I to say sent me? What's your name, God? God revealed his name to him. I am who I am. And so when Jesus stands in that poignant moment and says, I am the light of the world, their ears would have immediately perked up at the first two words. Is he saying what I think he's saying? Well, as you keep reading this chapter, that is precisely what he's saying. <laughs> that is precisely what he's saying. Uh, he leaves no doubt whatsoever, uh, so much so that by the end of the chapter, as we saw, the Jewish religious leaders are picking up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy, calling himself God. In addition to saying, I am the light of the world, three more times in this chapter, Jesus takes that divine name for himself right in front of them um, to put it as unambiguously as he knew how that he is God standing in their midst. And look how forcefully he says it. It's not always immediately apparent in our English translations, but it's, but it's there. So, for example, here's the, here's the first example of it. When the religious leaders take issue with the fact that he, is, he stood in the, in the midst of the crowd and said, I'm the light of the world, Jesus takes issue right back with them, and he tells them in verse 24, if you're looking at verse 24, he tells them, look there with me. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Now, our English versions say, I am he. Unless you believe that I am he. That smooths it out. It's a little smoother sentence in English to say that, but it doesn't take away anything, really. It just leads to the next question. I am he who? I mean, you will, unless you believe that I am he, you will die. In, he who? That's his point. Unless you believe that I am God. He, he doesn't say, I am he. He simply says, I am. It literally says, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is not just a moral man. He's not just a great teacher. He's, he, he's not some kind of prophetic social revolutionary. Just to make sure they heard him right, he also said, just a few verses later in verse 28, he says this, 
so that six months from that night, six months later from that very night, they would not, when they nail him to a cross to kill him, they wouldn't, just so they wouldn't think that they were right and he was wrong, he tells them in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Now, when you have, uh, again in English, I am he, but again, he who? I am. Even though six months from that night, they will put him to death and kill him in a, in, a, in a humiliating way. They will nail him naked to a cross and kill him in an in a, in a, in a otherwise shameful and humiliating way. Jesus is telling them this before it happens to not just take on the divine name for himself, but to demonstrate his omniscience, demonstrate uh, that he, he can do only what God can do. Just as God said of himself, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 9. Isaiah 44, 6 through 9. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. And here's what he says. Let them declare what is to come. And what will happen? Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. That is something that only God can do to declare the end from the beginning. Well, so, well prophets do that. No, prophets don't do that. Prophets tell, deliver the word of God. Only God can do that. Declaring what is to come and what will happen is a mark of omniscience and, and of deity which Jesus demonstrates right in front of them which they wouldn't realize until six months later when they actually did what he prophesied what happened what's he doing he takes the name of God for himself then you will know that I am and then he demonstrates the appropriateness of taking that name on himself by by doing what only God can do declaring the end from the beginning declaring his death by crucifixion six months before it takes place you keep reading in a similar way though it's not the third example of taking the divine name for himself he tells them down in verse 54 skip down to verse 54 and he tells them this he says if I glorify myself if it's just me saying that my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me so after twice more already taking the name of God for himself he says this that the father glorifies the son the father glorifies me he's talking to the religious leaders he's talking to the Pharisees and so no doubt their minds minds were full of the Bible their minds had to have gone to passages like Isaiah 48 11 where God plainly says my glory I will not give to another my glory I will not give to another and to the unbelieving Jewish leaders they heard blasphemy but Jesus is saying the father glorifies me and when the father glorifies me he is not giving it to another you see he is he is glorified together with the father because he is God with the father that's what he's saying it is a a steady stream right before them of, of claims to deity. He is God, and unless they acknowledge it, he tells them, you will die in your sins. 
They will crucify him in six months, and they will know he's God because he foretold it right in front of them before it happened. And the Father glorifies him without giving his glory to another. But as they protest and claim that they're holding fast to the faith of Abraham and God promised to save those who kept the faith of Abraham, Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In, in such a long chapter, when we're reading <laughs> when we're reading s- such a long passage at once, and you're almost tired of reading by the time you get to verse 56, and it's just like words going past you, it's it's, you, you might miss just the, just think about what he just said. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. He saw it and was glad. When did this happen? When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Well, um, a little sanctified spitballing. Um, hold your place there in John and turn all the way back to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham and he, he makes the same covenant promises to Abraham three different times. The first time in chapter 12, when he tells him to leave, leave, his, leave where he was from, leave his family, go to the land that I will show you, chapter 12. Then he does it again in a really interesting covenant ceremony in chapter 15. Then he does it a third time in chapter 17. And we read in chapter 17 in verse 1, when Abraham, or excuse me, his name was not changed to Abraham yet, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord the Lord, and notice how in your English Bible the, the name Lord there is in small caps. That, that is the English translators letting you know that this is not Adonai, which also means Lord, which would be lowercase Lord, but the divine name, Yahweh, I am, translated Lord. Covenant name, I am, appeared to Abraham, Abram and said... I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Most commentators agree that this is a theophany. It's not, it's not like chapter 12 where the Lord just speaks. He speaks and he says, go to the land that I will show you. Uh, it's not even exactly like chapter 15, which is also a theophany, an Old Testament appearing of God. Because There is a theophany in chapter 15, but the difference is he puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham doesn't see it, right? And he, and, and, and the, and he, and he appears as a smoking fire pot, right? This is different. This is, Abraham's still very much awake, and, and covenant I am appears to Abraham, which, again, is a theophany, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament, and most agree uh, is more precisely a Christophany, right? Which is a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. 
the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Abram by the name I am in in English that small, small caps Lord and notice what happens in verse 3 Abram fell on his face he saw him and fell on his face in worship God the Son the pre-incarnate Christ appearing to Abram here repeats in the following verses repeats the covenant promises to make Abram's name great to give him offspring to give him land in which they would dwell as his people in which he would be their God we know from earlier in chapter 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as as righteousness he believed when these promises were made which are repeated to him here by the Lord I am the pre-incarnate Christ in this way I believe it is here that Abram saw Christ he saw his day and understood that these promises Abraham understood that these promises that 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 uh, that were being made to him were, were were just provisional they weren't the final state of anything they were they were promises that God would keep to Abraham but they were pointing forward to something else something eternal they're, they're embedded in the promises themselves it's not just it's through your offspring all the families of the world will be blessed like this is a a, 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 a a universal a cosmic kind of promise he understood that these were this was not just about a, about a, a piece of real estate in the Middle East he knew it was about something much bigger than that and Hebrews tells us that Hebrews eleven ten says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has, has foundations whose designer and builder is God so when Christ appeared to Abram in Genesis 17 and repeated these promises Abram knew that these promises would ultimately be fulfilled by the Lord himself standing before him as a pre-incarnate Christ and Abram fell on his face before him in worship in Genesis 17 as you turn back to John chapter 8 it makes perfect sense now when when Jesus says in verse 56 Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad the last straw came in verse 58 for the Jewish rulers when he said again what they were all already thinking verse 58 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am and our English translations get it right they don't they don't say I am he here Jesus isn't just saying by the way you think I'm 45 they said you're not yet 50 now I'm not just I'm not just he's not just saying I'm older than Abraham I'm not just eternally older than Abraham he's saying that being true I created Abraham I mean he's telling them that Abraham worshiped him that day when he fell on his face and he's telling them that if they saw what Abraham saw if they truly had the faith of Abraham they would worship him too they understood precisely what he was saying and they had had enough so they couldn't listen anymore so in verse 59 they try to stone him to death for blasphemy but Jesus escapes them this chapter probably more than any other in John's gospel asserts the deity of Jesus Christ which has been being asserted since the first verse of the of the book in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and it's it's in full flower 
in John 8. But his deity isn't the only thing that's mentioned here or emphasized. Beginning in the middle of the chapter in verse, 30, in verse 31, around that neighborhood, Jesus tells them that it's, it's only through him that, that they can be saved. He tells them in verses 31 and 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's telling them he is the Lord who appeared to Abraham, and he is bringing to salvation the promises he made to Abraham foreshadowed and pointed, pointed forward to. Faith in his word saves. Again, which is a prerogative that only belongs to God. I mean, Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Only the Lord God can save. And Jesus says, My word will save you. The question, though, that dominates the second half of the chapter uh, apart from the deity of Christ, which we've seen runs all the way through it, is what does saving faith in him and in his word look like? Right? What is the nature of saving faith? Well, let's say a word about that. Now, what I want you to notice is that John tells us in verse 30 that in the middle of all this, while tensions are already rising, he tells us in verse 30, many believed in him. Many believed in him. The only way that John or anybody else would know that many believed in him was if there were people in the crowd who were making some kind of outward gesture, some sort of outward uh, statement, some outward profession of, of claiming uh, faith in Jesus or desiring to follow Jesus, desire to be his disciple. And in verse 31, we read that Jesus began to address, quote, the Jews who had believed in him. But clearly, as the conversation proceeds, Jesus knows something deeper. He knows that this profession of faith among some, talking to those who had believed in him, he knows that this was not genuine. How does he know? Well, he tells them in verse 37 that despite their profession of faith, he tells them, my word finds no place in you. It's an awkward thing to say some, to somebody who just said, I believe. My word finds no place in you. Why does his word find no place in him? Well, he, going down to verse 44, <laughs> and it gets a little stronger. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, which sounds harsh, I, I admit, but it's a biblical truth that is repeated over and over and over again not just here all throughout the new testament let me just consider this list of scriptures and you might jot the references down so satan himself tells jesus during the 40 days of temptation in luke 4 6 in luke chapter 4 verse 6 satan tells jesus to you i will give all this authority and all their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. What, what, what makes Satan so deceptive is, is not that everything he says, every aspect of what he says is an outlandish lie. It's that he mixes some element of truth with error. And it's, and it's all the more deceptive because of that. Because it's not, he is not wrong in saying this, this authority 
that some measure of authority in this world has been delivered to me. Satan exercises an incredible amount of authority in this current age, right? So much so that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, little g, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All unbelievers. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seems to think so because he says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. In Ephesians 2, 2, Paul says of the Ephesian Christians, before they came to Christ, they were, quote, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, as a pastor to pray and patiently seek and pray for the salvation of those who oppose the gospel so that, as he puts it in those two verses, God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and so that, listen to this, so that, quote, they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I mean, over and over again, not just Paul, not just John, all over the New Testament. Unbelievers, according to the Scriptures, are dead in their own trespasses and sins, but that's true. But they are held deeper in their own deception against Christ by the influence of Satan in the world. Jesus tells some of the Jews who, in this chapter, some of the Jews who had some kind of outward profession of desire to follow him, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Not meaning they are as evil as they could possibly be, but they are deceived by him and dead in their sins. Jesus tells them in verse 47, whoever is of God, of God, not of the devil, but whoever is of God hears the words of God and by implication hears and believes. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's a strong statement. The reason you don't hear my word and believe is because you are not of God. Those who are born of God hear and believe. That's exactly what he's going to tell the Pharisees two chapters later in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. He tells them in that chapter, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And this is not something altogether new at this juncture in John. He's been saying this since chapter 1. He said in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who, who did that? Who received him? Who believed in his name? Verse 13, those who are born not of blood, nor the will of man, or, or the will of the flesh, but of God. Who receives him? 
Who believes in his name and has the authority to become children of God? Those who are born of God. But the question needs to be asked here in John 8. How did Jesus know this about some of them? How did he know it? I mean, how did he know, despite what they initially said about desiring to follow him? I mean, how else would John know, as he was saying this, verse 30, many believed in him? How did he know that? There had to be some kind of outward profession. How did Jesus know, despite what they initially said about desiring him, that they were actually not born again? That they were actually still in unbelief and under the deceptive influence of Satan? How did he know? Well, seeing how the chapter spends so much time demonstrating the deity of Jesus, I mean, did he simply know because he is omniscient God in human flesh? I mean, he could. But if you look carefully at the conversation, they themselves demonstrate their unbelief despite what they initially said. How? We don't have time to read it all again, but just look at how much of the conversation in the second half of the chapter revolves around Abraham. I mean, just count how many times Abraham's name comes up. It's a lot. What they went on to, to demonstrate about themselves is that their ongoing confidence before God was actually in their Jewish heritage. They were, they were, that they were physical descendants of Abraham. They say in verse 39, Abraham is our father, as if that counted for something. Jesus rightly replies to them in that same verse, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. He said the thing that counts with regard to Abraham is not the physical descendants of Abraham, but the children who believe as Abraham believed. Hear the word of Christ and believe. Their, their professed desire to follow Christ showed itself not to be genuine. Because at rock bottom, when push came to shove, they weren't trusting Christ, but in something else. In this case, their Jewish heritage. And that is a good question for us to consider for ourselves. That's a good question. Are we genuinely trusting Christ as our rock bottom, push comes to shove, hope. Are we, are we in our heart, deepest heart of heart saying, I have no hope whatsoever but Christ. Take away Christ, there I have no confidence. This is a mark of genuine saving faith. But is that all? No. If we back up again to the middle of the passage and see how Jesus defines genuine saving faith, again, he says there in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And that word abide means to, to live, to dwell, to remain. Profess faith and remain in that. Pre profess faith, persevere in that. Live your days. Continue in that. And he says again in ver later in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Keeping is close to abiding. But it adds the idea of, of, of obedience to the faith. Keeping it. Not just persevering in it, but keeping it. Which is the evidence of 
genuine faith. As James would later say, faith without works is dead. You, 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 you show me your faith apart from your, your works, I will show you my faith by my works. Genuine saving faith leaves behind all other hopes to trust in Christ alone and, and live in daily, perfect no, but live in daily obedience to Him. It reorients all of life it reorients all of life, not just around the forgiveness that he gives, but around his lordship. Because as we've seen in this chapter, he is Lord. No one makes Jesus the Lord of their life. He already is. We either submit to it or we don't. And in all of that, genuine saving faith trusts what Jesus says is the definition of the good and satisfying life. Let me quickly explain what I mean before we draw this to a close. I want to zoom in on verses 28 to 32. And notice something about what Jesus means by freedom in this life. Verses, let's just read those four ver or few verses again. So Jesus said to them, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now let's start here. In verses 31 and 32, we learn that Jesus gives freedom to those who abide in his word. In fact, if you go down to verse 36, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Implying, right, if you follow the logic, if, 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 if the Son gives freedom, he himself is also free. Like he cannot give to another that which he does not already possess. He is free, and those who keep his word, he grants his freedom. But what does Jesus' freedom look like? What does his freedom look like? He described it in verses 28 and 29. He does nothing on his own authority. He speaks just as the Father taught him. He always does what is pleasing to the Father. That's Jesus' freedom. We, being the Americans that we are, interpret freedom as independence. That's not biblical. Independence is actually Genesis chapter 3. Freedom as independence means freedom to do whatever I want. I am the Lord of my life. I am the captain of my ship. But Jesus says that more fundamentally is freedom Freedom is freedom to do what we ought, to do what is good and what is right, that honors the Lord and not ourselves. That is the freedom he calls us to when he says in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As we abide in his word and his word abides in us, then those two things, what we want and what we ought, they draw closer together. 
Because sometimes, I, I, most days I wake up and I feel like what I want and what I, what I ought are miles apart. But, the, but, 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 but abiding in Jesus' word and his word abiding in us and walking daily in obedience and growing in sanctification, the fruit of that is what I want and what I ought. They grow closer together so that, that eventually when I'm glorified and see Jesus face to face, those are the same thing. And for all eternity... What I ought will be what I want. That's called sanctification. And that is genuine saving faith that Christ our God alone graciously gives to those who ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. Oh, Lord, I pray that, that these, these two basic truths would, would sit heavy on us. Uh, during this Advent season, they would be a rock in our shoe that we can't ignore. This Advent season where, yeah, we're gearing up for Christmas Day where we remember that you came humbly um, to save your people from their sins. But in this Advent season, we're actually looking forward to the fact that you are coming again. You will one day come on the clouds of heaven. Many will cry out to the rocks and the hills to fall on them and hide them from you as you come. And, 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 and to those who do not believe, they, that day is described as a terrible day. But to those who believe, it is a day for which we long. It is a day for which we hope is a day we look forward to. I pray that as we dwell on that truth these Advent days, we would couple it with truths that we learned today. That, uh, Jesus, when you come, you are God who is coming to take your people to yourself, that where you are there we may be also forevermore. You are coming to judge the world, to make a new heavens and a new earth, we want to be found faithful when you come. What does saving faith look like? It is faith that sees you for who you are. It abides in your word, and your word abides in us. And through that, your Holy Spirit makes us more like you, ready for that day. Pray that, that would begin to be a reality in us starting now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.